confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Monday morning, the 13th of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Saturday night was a truly a remarkable night in the decades of the BBC's football coverage. It wasn't just remarkable, of course, for football and its fans. It was also remarkable that a dispute over impartiality has called into question the credibility of uh, the corporation's management and indeed the BBC itself. It was a significant day too for journalism and significant for British politics. Now on BBC One, we're sorry that we're unable to show our normal match of the day, including commentary tonight. Yes, no commentary, no theme tune, no pundits and of course no Gary Lineker. Lineker, as you know, upset the British government by describing its language on immigration as similar to that of 1930s Germany. The BBC's decision to suspend Gary Lineker for tweeting his opinion didn't just result in a match of the day history, but because other presenters pulled out of programming in support of Lineker, the BBC's sports coverage was greatly reduced over the weekend. Let's speak to Seamus Dooley, who's the Irish Secretary of the NUJ, the National Union of Journalists. Good morning to you, Seamus, and thanks as always for joining us on the programme. It's reported this morning that a solution to this dispute is close, but in all of your years as a journalist, and representing journalists. Have you ever seen a dispute that has attracted as much attention as this one has? No, I think the phrase unprecedented is overused, but it is. this is an unprecedented situation and uh, it, it is grotesque, unbelievable and bizarre. Uh, it is something that we would never have imagined happening. I mean, the BBC... Uh, is in crisis at the moment. They have a politically appointed chair who I suspect at this stage may be on the brink of departing. Even his Tory, the Tory ministers who whom he has supported so loyally seem to be distancing a bit away from him. Um, and we would never have predicted uh, that Gary Lineker was going to be a Trojan horse for this kind of action. It is quite extraordinary. Uh, and uh, it's a mess, to be honest, of their own making. Mm. And amazing support, uh, a mass walkout uh, such by BBC staff. Yeah, well, first of all, I think it's important to say that every company, not just media company, have social media rules. And if they don't, they should have. What the BBC are guilty of is breaking their own rules because their editorial guidelines are 
very clear. The BBC have rules and they have guidelines. And they are very clear that there are some people, like news reporters, who have to be extra vigilant in relation to their social media posts. Why is that? The BBC is a public service broadcaster, so you have to be careful as a BBC news reporter or current affairs reporter that you don't in any way imperil the impartiality of the BBC or imply that your view reflects the view of the great corporation that is the BBC. It specifically says that there's a lesser risk uh, depending on the job you perform. And it actually points out in the guidelines that if you're covering arts or entertainment or sport, there is little risk. So even in their own guidelines, as one of their, their former heads of editorial policy pointed out, uh, they, they have, they're in breach of their own guidelines. So, you know, this could have been handled so much better. Uh, what is really amazing, Mike, is I think you and I both know that soccer fans are passionate about match of the day. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it is... Uh, it, 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 that it's believable that so, that someone in the BBC didn't say, "Hold on a moment here." This, you know, that there are some people you don't deny. <laughs> Soccer fans are one group, and the loyalty and the commitment to Lineker is such that not only has this is this a, an important moment for journalism and the BBC, probably for British politics as well. Mm. And I think that's evident uh, by the comments of uh, the British Prime Minister returning from Australia last night, asked both sides to sort it out. Yeah, but I mean, the reality is that, uh, I mean, the, you know, he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth. I say this, after vested interest, we, the NUK, UK and Ireland represent BBC journalists. We have a local radio strike in BBC on uh, Wednesday and Thursday because of the tearing out of the heart of, of community broadcasting or local broadcasting in the UK. We have a battle at the moment trying to save journalism in radio foil. Uh, there is huge pressure politically on the BBC from the Tories. The chair, Sharp, is you know not only a Tory funder, but actually arranged funding for a loan for Boris Johnston. A parliamentary committee said he con- should consider his position, and with sheer arrogance, he has just ignored that. So in a way, you can't look at what's happening with Lineker and this issue, separate from all of those other pieces. And, you know, for people like myself who watch the media or yourself, mm. you know, this is not news. The general public can't be expected to follow this stuff with the same level of interest. But certainly I think there's a wake-up call and people are saying, what exactly is going on? The other, the other point is it's a bit insulting to listeners and viewers of the BBC to imagine that because Lineker expresses a view and Apart for a moment what the view is, that viewers and listeners would presume that that's the official view of the BBC. He is a sports commentator. Mm. He has a view on a political issue. That's fine. But does anyone think that viewers and listeners of the BBC are going to say that that reflects the corporate view of the BBC? Because that's the implication of their action. Uh, and it's very narrow. And I say that as someone who regularly would advise people to be careful in the workplace about their social media accounts. And that's not just for journalists. Every company has policies. Mm. But this is pushing a policy. And what's concerning here is that originally Lineker clearly was given the impression there was not going to be any disciplinary action. So what changed? And the only conclusion we can change is that it's a response to the political reaction to him. And it is 
that concern, which I think has woken up the British public. Indeed, and uh, the prospect of any government pulling uh, the strings of an independent broadcaster, but particularly the BBC because of its reputation for accurate and impartial reporting. And it is an international reputation. The BBC is is the flagship, and, and justifiably. And, you know, I think we all know that, you know, from time to time, people complain about public service broadcasting, and there is an assumption that either RTE or the BBC uh, are in some way uh, state-sponsored and therefore are compromised. In my experience, it doesn't happen that way. In my experience, most public service journalists uh, are acutely aware of the importance of impartiality. The best position you can be in as a public service broadcaster, or indeed in your own station, is when everyone is given out about you. but the worst, but but when it appears that people who have a political agenda are are calling, are listening to others calling the shots, that's a problem. And we must remember that both the director general and the chairman of the BBC have close personal and professional links with the Labour with with the Tories, and that's that's the problem. We have a publicly appointed boards in Ireland. But in relation to the chair of the RTE Authority, for instance, or TG Cahar, uh, our appointment system um, is much, I think, more robust. There has been a tradition that even where uh, political grandees are appointed to the Board of Governors of the BBC, as they used to be called, that they acted independently. Uh, and I think the, you know, the political establishment in uh, Britain are a bit aghast. If this occurred under Johnston, no one would have been surprised. Mm. Uh, But this is a legacy of a policy of the Tories that, you know, I think it could represent a watershed moment. I I hope it does. I also hope it is resolved quickly. Uh, Lineker is very wealthy. He's an unlikely mascot for these kind of campaigns. But actually, more than anything else, it proves that the public does care about basic independence and freedom of the press, freedom of expression. They might get up and think about it every day, but when it's threatened, uh, they, you know, they, they say, listen, stall the digger there a moment. All right, and I take it from what you're saying, the National Union of Journalists would support uh, the position uh, that Gary Lineker is taking, which is that he has a right to express opinion on issues of uh, politics or current affairs uh, on social media if he chooses to do so. But is that because he's a sports journalist and you'd have a a different view on a news broadcaster making uh, comments such as the ones that Lineker did? Each each case is judged on its own merits. Journalists have guidelines. They must adhere to the guidelines as parts of their contract. But in the case of Lineker, it's very clear that he's he is a sports commentator. Uh, if you are presenting a current affairs program, uh, you would, um, you would, we would, yeah, you know, we would advise caution. I always say, by the way, to journalists that it's okay to have an untweeted thought. Uh, I, I'm skeptical about the value of engaging in social media some of the time. Hmm. But actually, the irony is that employers encourage their staff to engage with the public through, through Twitter, and that's deemed as being necessary. I think one of the issues for Lineker in particular is the hypocrisy involved here. The BBC were very glad to allow him uh, the freedom to criticise Qatar. He criticised Qatar and the human rights record of Qatar on a sports programme. So that is actually mixing politics and sport. I think it was entirely appropriate. The BBC didn't have a problem with that.
on their own platform. Mm. So Question, questioning human rights and guitar is one thing. When you question them in the UK, apparently that's you know that's a different kettle of stinking fish. Okay, uh, so it's a question of freedom of speech, then, is it? It's it, it, it's a question of freedom of, of, of expression. It is, yes. It is a question of freedom of expression. Uh, it's a question as well of due process. Um, there has not been due process in this case. Uh, and I think uh, you add to that complex, complex layer the notion of government interference or apparent government interference in decision-making. And in all of this, you can't ignore the fact that the, the chair should be gone by now. Sharp should be gone. Uh, he should ne- he should not be in this position. Uh, there was a clear conflict of interest. Uh, that has been identified by a parliamentary committee. He His leadership is serious on the question. And my guess is I don't think the DG is going anywhere soon, that if this is to be resolved, the stepping there may well be a, a reason for the chair to step aside. Uh, there may not be an admission of wrong, but I think some form of fudge will be on the diet before the next 24 hours to resolve this. It can't go on. It simply can't go on. But the consequences of this uh, are important, and I think there will be a lot of questions to be, to be answered. Well, what I do hope is that the debate extends beyond vinegar and match of the day into the whole principles of corporate governance and how we got to this mess and how it is avoided in the future. And the other issue, which is really important, is Gary Lineker commands huge support. He has a great network of public following and, of course, he has vast resources. It is important that journalists and media workers who don't have that kind of network of support are given the same support, and that's where we come in. Uh, And as a a result of his position, it appears that there's great support for Gary Lineker, and this has backfired. Uh, An own goal in all of uh, the other football references uh, that are being made in relation to reporting uh, this story, but for the BBC, not a good story for the BBC. Uh, How will it play out for the British government, uh, which uh, you seem very cynical about in terms of how they may have interfered with uh, the thinking of the BBC uh, and we know that they raise concerns about Gary Lineker tweeting uh, his view on their uh, immigration policy. Uh, But will that backfire in the British government? Uh, Because it's quite possible that people are are saying now that as a result of this furore, uh, it's worth looking at to see if he had a point. Uh, Are they introducing a policy that's similar to 1930s Germany? It is an inhumane policy and the trade union movement in Britain, the human rights organisations, even even I noticed uh, Osborne this morning has been talking about himself, Tory, talking about some of the inappropriate language used by Tories. Um, so actually, I do think that this is causing a, que- uh, uh, you know, this will cause more people to question the policy. It was already there. Lineker has put his money where his mouth is. He's been, you know, proud record of supporting the Red Cross. He is, you know, he has been a consistent voice on this issue. Uh, what he said is really no surprise, and he's not saying anything that other people have have uh, uh, have been uh, not been said. I think what is relevant here is that he has tapped into the voice of so many ordinary, decent people who are saying that when you see people, ragged people, getting off ships with nothing, absolutely nothing, Mm. and there are no possessions, that the human response to that is sympathy and empathy, not send them back, send them Mm. back. And I think he has tapped into a spirit 
which the, which some of the Tory ministers seem to be so out of touch with that they have been surprised. It is interesting that what you have here is, you know, to us, I suspect some obscure backbenchers started this and then other people started attacking him. No one believes that they're acting on their own in that. Uh, what you now have is, because, and I don't, I can understand what has happened here, is that uh, as there is a great public backlash, Sunak and other people uh, are actually turning around and saying to the BBC, you sort this out. So maybe it's, there's an irony here that, you know, the great Tory supporting chair has been left out to dry and the, the government is probably astonishing him with their ingratitude because they certainly haven't been, they haven't given a ringing endorsement to the actions of the BBC. And that's because I think whatever else politicians are uh, good at, they're excellent at, at reading the public mood. And the public mood in Britain at this stage is definitely not with the BBC. Or, or, or with the Tory policy on this issue. Indeed, I'm reading reports as well of a, a backlash from senior Conservatives that there is Tory uh, representatives who are concerned about the policy which is to lock them up and send them home, deport them uh, without exception. And that would result in unaccompanied children returning to their home country, uh, which is of huge concern, uh, not just to members of uh, the Conservative Party, but to a a lot of uh, groups working with immigrants for that matter. Yeah, I mean, you know, church leaders, uh, NGOs, all of these bodies, this this is an issue which, which concerns a huge amount of people. And I think what's interesting as well is we're well used to situations where governments and state agencies have anti-racism initiatives and where in sometimes very fluffy terms they use sports people to promote basic decent values. What has happened here is that Lineker has extended his support for those values and said, well actually hold on a moment if we're genuinely anti-racist and if we're genuinely concerned about humanity, we actually need to look at this policy and the language that's been used here is very worrying and you know, some people might think he overstated the case, but what he has done is he has actually been consistent in his stance and he has, you know, made life very uncomfortable. And mm. in a way, you know, it may not have been his intention, but this could very well be the moment where, you know, not only is the policy in relation to the BBC changed, but actually the whole migrant policy towards migrants may change. So... And I don't know, because I'm not close enough to it, to know whether the public support is for Lineker or for what he said or a bit of both. OK, we'll uh, see a solution uh, possibly this morning, uh, according to reports. Uh, but what happens next in terms of the BBC's policy, uh, I think uh, will be very interesting to watch. Seamus, thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. and uh, Much appreciated. That's Seamus Dooley, who's the Irish Secretary of the NUJ. That's the National Union of Journalists. Michael Reed on LMFM. Laurie Cleary was 95 uh, when she died on the 24th of April 2020 at uh, the Dalgan House Nursing Home in Dundalk. Uh, the home was overwhelmed with COVID-19 and in all, 22 residents lost their lives in the home. What happened between the 1st of April and the 24th of April when Flory passed away was highlighted to some degree in Freedom of Information documents that were published by the Sunday Independent in an article that Maeve Sheen brings to light 
uh, some of uh, the crisis, if it could be described, uh, that complete chaos uh, and indeed panic uh, was order of the day for the month in question. Let's uh, speak to Flory's daughter, who is Anne Cleary. And a very good morning to you, Anne. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Thank you for the introduction and your summary and uh, for giving us the time to be here. Oh, well, you're very welcome to be here. Uh, it was very disturbing uh, to read what was in the paper yesterday. There was a lot of concern. Uh, there was a lot of uh, appeals for help. Uh, there were staff pleading for the Irish Army to be brought in at one stage. Eventually, the home was taken over by the RCSI group. Uh, I'm sure you've had sight of uh, these Freedom of Information documents for some time. Uh, what uh, do you and the other family members feel uh, about what happened and how your loved ones were treated after reading these internal documents? Well, I suppose there's a lot in that, Michael. Um, and I just want to say something first because uh, I think we often forget it. Uh, the first thing I want to say is to actually honour people like the nurse H- Jackie Gordon and all the other people who were going into work in Dalgan over those weeks because um, you can see in the newspaper and in the articles that have been there and in previous articles, and I certainly have seen in the documents that I've seen, the kind of conditions um, that they were working in, and it was horrendous. And Jackie um, Gordon made those conditions clear to more reward who's yeah. manager of older persons yeah. services. And yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's also the case people like Jackie Gordon at that time, you know, were there, as I understand it, voluntarily. It was a voluntary redeployment. Um, you know, so there's a lot of context to that. And, you know, I think in your introduction and again in saying what, what you've, you've raised there, I mean, there were a lot of people raising the alarm. And um, we can see from the HSE notes, I don't know what was going on in the private nursing home because we don't get access to their documents because they're not subject to freedom of information legislation. Um, but, you know, I certainly can see Jackie Gordon, but also other people in the HSC at different levels raising the alarm um, pretty consistently. And also just to clarify, I, when this all, all started, you know, I would have used the word HSE and now I feel very compromised when I use the word HSE because there are so many parts to the HSE. And essentially, uh, in, with Dalgan, for most of this time, it was community HSE that were working with Dalgan and trying to support them. But you also have the acute services, which was the RCSI hospital, such as Our Lady of Lourdes and the Loud Hospital, and obviously public health. So it's just, it's a big conglomerate and, you know, it's a big complex system as well. Right. Uh, The owners uh, of the home uh, as well made contact uh, with the Chief Medical Officer, the Minister for Health. Uh, There was text sent to Mairead McGuinness and to the uh, HSE CEO Paul Reid in which uh, there was a a warning that a tragedy was about to unfold at Dalgan. Uh, uh, There there was some response, but there was no action really, was there? Yeah, I suppose just just to go back uh, a little, Michael. Um, so it was Mairead McGuinness was the first person who raised the alarm, if you like, nationally. And that's it was I don't know who it was who actually contacted her, but I do know that she, um, you know, did go back to Dalgan and she consistently went back. Even she was told on Saturday because CHOA had a conversation with Dalgan and they said we're going to send in more nurses and. Then I know from Freedom of Information uh, documents that she that was confirmed back with Mary McGuinness. And I know that she contacted the nursing home again on the Monday to make sure or to see how that happened and again got back to the department. So, you know, there were a lot of people here who knew what, what was going on in Dalvin. 
and again, we're raising the alarm. But let's just go back a bit mm. because, you know, it's very early in April when, in the context of uh, a viral pandemic, the HSE give Dalgan, and again, I'm not quite sure who in the HSE, I think it was community, give Dalgan permission to take people out of single rooms and to cohort them into what had been a dining room. And the only reason they do this from the documents that I've seen is because Dalgan do not have staff. So Dalgan had a staffing crisis from very early on in April. And, you know, I suppose, I think you use the word, but I would also use the word when I look at, because again, I've seen this before, but when I see it in the paper like this or when I see it spread out like this, it has a different kind of resonance. But to me, the word that comes up when I look at it is actually it's like inaction and passivity. And, you know, I, I'm i just astounded, frankly. I mean, and I find it outrageous that there were vulnerable people in this facility, which was pretty much cloaked in kind of silence and secrecy. I'm saying that because, you know, families weren't able to go in to visit. We were banned from visiting. I certainly wouldn't look at the communications that were coming from the place as being reflective of anything or even perhaps suggestive of the kind of crisis that they were dealing with. Mm. So you had a huge crisis, and it was there from very early in April. And we were dealing with vulnerable people who were in a nursing home because they needed specialist levels of care. Mm. So I don't know what happens when you only have six nurses out of, I think, 23, which was the case. It may not have been that way every day. But how, how do you decide who yeah. gets care and who doesn't? Uh, and, and you're the talking GPs? about 24... Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a very valid point because staffing really did seem to be a, a, a critical part of why it was so hard to give that care uh, to your mother and the other patients in Dalgan House at the time. The GPs, the local GPs, wouldn't go into Dalgan House for fear of getting COVID. A lot of the staff were out sick. Uh, and people might say, well, what could the army do in a nursing home? Well, uh, that very nurse uh, that you spoke uh, about uh, wrote in an email uh, that uh, the 71 residents who were there at the time were completely Mm -hmm. uh, dehydrated due to staff shortages. I recommend the Army be engaged as I'm aware they can provide deep cleaning and healthcare members could provide Mm -hmm. fluids. Uh, And she makes that point you were just making there that there was just one and she emphasised that again by saying one junior nurse on duty tonight with five carers for 69 residents. Yeah. And astonishingly, if you have one nurse on duty, that's okay under HICWA regulations. You know, but... Calgon was a big nursing home at the best of times. It's a big building. They had people in all sort of states of conditions anyway. You had people in this, uh, you know, who were dying. They had, people had died already. It is just, you know, to me, it's like, I suppose what I'm left with, Michael, is, you know, who was acting to ensure the life and the well-being of the residents. Mm. And I'm not saying that people weren't trying to, but it's just... Where was that centrally held and who was, car- who was saying and assessing and looking at the risk to residents throughout this whole period and saying, what is the best action now for the residents? OK, and I saw in the report yesterday that another nurse, nurse uh, Catherine Digan, mm. uh, reported her concerns in mm. a teleconference uh, with yes. uh, the consultant Jerry Trishan at Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital. Yeah. Well, you know, it's to me... I mean, to me, I don't know what power the HSE had 
say, the lady Jackie Gordon who was sent in. You know, there's a comment there that, you know, the HSE, people thought the HSE were taking over the nursing home. I don't think that was the case. So the HSE were almost kind of trying to micromanage a context where it seems to me that at this point they didn't have an awful lot of power and authority. But it's not in the published pieces that's there. But Jackie Gorman, you know, was a HSE nurse who was in there and she was reporting to the HSE. And on Wednesday, the 14th, the 15th, sorry, the 15th of April, she goes back in, she's back in Dalton. And again, we have bins overflowing. She is walking into rooms that say they've been cleaned, but they clearly haven't. She says she doesn't know who is who walking around the place. She is asking uh, the Dalgan people, can they print out photographs and you know records that could be put on the wall around the residence because that might make it easier for people to be there. She is hugely distressed. And at this point, you also have nationally, you know, public health very concerned about the extent of the outbreak in Dalgan. Um, but suddenly, again, we have the HSE starting to use words um, such as um, patient safety. And that's a big word. And in fact, it's in the newspaper piece where I think it's one of the HSE managers actually says, um, yeah, her serious concerns about the safety of the facility and that it is now a patient safety issue and much bigger than infection prevention control. And there is a and consensus, means, she said, that the matter needs to be expedited urgently yes. uh, and it yes. wasn't, which is the yes. tragic story uh, that you and the other families yes. have been living with. Yes. And you've been calling for an inquiry into this, yes. Anne, and I just want to conclude on that if I yes. can, because I think it's certain as things stand that there will be not a specific inquiry into what happened at Dalgan House. The government has said that it will commission, uh, it will establish a commission of investigation into how COVID was managed generally sometime in the middle of this year, but it's not even known if there'll be any specific reference to Dalgan House in, in, in that inquiry. No, we don't know. Uh, nobody's asked us. In, I think it was late October we met Minister Donnelly and Minister Butler and at the time Minister Donnelly told us he would be back in a few short weeks with some suggestions for us as a way forward or a process that might help with establishing what happened in Dalgan. Uh, he hasn't come back to us. Um, you know, many, I think what I would say is, I think there is a huge value, apart from the COVID, the general COVID inquiry that's going to happen, in actual inquiry, in establishing what happened at these places and getting a basic account, because that actually should be used to feed the general inquiry that's going to happen. And the second thing that I think is really important is that this inquiry needs to include human rights perspectives. It needs to include groups of people and professionals such as social workers and experts in human rights and families who actually have gone through this process. You know, it, you know, Einstein said you cannot solve a problem with the same consciousness that create, created it. And the, to have the same types of professions or groups evaluating or doing whatever they're going to do in this inquiry, which again, we don't know. Um, we don't know actually what shape it's going to take. Is not really going to produce the kind of learnings or the kind of reflection or the kind of changes that are needed in things such as management, governance, accountability, quality of care, and in, indeed embedding human rights approaches into our care facilities at every level, public and private. And I'm a bit more hopeful than you, Michael. You know, I actually, you know, uh, while I'm quite 
shocked by the way the system has behaved and organisations have behaved and entities have behaved and everything that I've witnessed over what happened in Galgan. You know, I do have a level of hope. There are actually good people in systems and there are people and we are lucky, you know, we've got some great TDs and Loud who've been really supportive of us and who keep advocating for this and indeed in instances such as Fergus O'Dowd are experts in this field. So I also believe that there is scope for us to look at an investigation and again it hasn't been really properly explored other than individual letters to the coroner you know, but another way to actually look at what happened here would be to have inquests okay. and to have those called. Um, Thank we you. have to leave it. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thanks, Thanks. a lot. Thank you. Okay. Anne Cleary is uh, the daughter of uh, Flory Cleary who died on uh, the 24th of April 2020 in the Dalgan House Nursing Home. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, Conor Gaelica is uh, concerned uh, that uh, the new curriculum for primary schools will see a reduction in uh, the hours teaching Irish from three and a half to three hours a, a week. It's a 14% reduction. And let's hear from Julianne Despan, who is uh, the General Secretary of Conrad Gaelica. Very good morning to you, uh, and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, today. Uh, it's obviously uh, less teaching time, uh, but uh, how effective are we at teaching Irish in uh, schools anyway? Yeah, Grimagin, Michael, it's good to be with you. Um, I suppose, um, yeah, we're very concerned that, you know, if reducing the amount of time that, you know, is in the system at the moment, it's only going to make, you know, the standards, they're going to drop. I mean, there's no two ways of looking about it. And when we teach Irish in the schools, I think, you know, they, you know, in fairness to teachers, I think that they're doing a great job. Um, I think, though, the system is letting them down. And we can see that even from, there was a report that came out two weeks ago that was talking about the junior cycle and how prepared the students coming from primary school are for the junior cycle. And both the teachers and the students said that they weren't prepared enough. And what they actually said, the teachers said, the standard of Irish had, in their view, was too low. Uh, Standard of Irish they had, in their view, was too low to meet the goals and specifications Mm. and main challenges related to literature, etc. So, you know, we know that there's a problem. They're probably right. Uh, I mean, many people will tell you they spent 12 years in school and came out and couldn't speak two words. Yeah, but the the interesting thing about that is, you know, when when you... you delve into that and you talk to a person for a while and even if I, I've done it a good few times you know and you, you, if you talk to me in Irish what they don't have they've never really had the practice of using the language um, you know with another person maybe rather than just in the Irish class and we've you know what you find is that you actually do have a lot of vocabulary in the back of your head it's just mm. trying to put the two things together and that's what we've always been saying in, in primary school that especially we should be focusing in on uh, partial immersion because we know immersion education is what works, you know, Irish medium education, the Gaelic school in the work, the Irish summer colleges work and students learn the language and they get a command of the language, they're able to use the language. So what, how can we do that in the um, schools of function through the mean of English? Well, maybe we could do something like, you know, PE to write or art to write or drama to write or something that they're communicating with the other students and using the language and enjoying the language, a bit of a crack with the language. Mm, yeah, well, I mean, that seems to be a big part of the problem and it's not just Irish, it's how we teach languages generally. I mean, a, a lot of people spend whatever it is, six years in secondary school uh, and come out uh, and their French, let's say, or their German would be very poor in comparison uh, to students in other countries who are learning foreign languages. Yeah, we need to, I suppose, look at how we teach the languages uh, and we teach them better. Um, and I think that's, again, is a system, system-wide 
what we need to do is change our system. And what we, we're promoting as well over the last number of years is that we need to have a, a, a system that goes from the whole way from preschool the whole way to third level because that's how long we teach Irish, for example, in the system. And we could base it on the European Common Framework of Reference for Languages. Basically what that is, it, it, it zones in on the skills of the students and you'd, you'd focus in on oral first and then you'd move into the other skills afterwards. You know, and if you were to do that, for example, and had a flexible system like that, you could be on a different level in terms of your oral Irish to your written Irish, you mm. know, and you can take these things into account. So, for example, a student has a learning difficulty as well. Instead of excluding them from learning Irish um, with the exemption system that we have at the moment, you could actually include them and say, well, you can do the Leaving Cert um, and you can do it based on your oral Irish and that you will get whatever points or whatever system is in place there for third level, mm. that you will be able to get those points based on your oral Irish. Why exclude them if they have a learning difficulty where they find it difficult to write a language? Right. It's not that we're bad at languages, is it? I mean, if, if you look at other countries, uh, if you go to Greece or Spain or one of those places, uh, your waiter will probably have six different languages. But we can't seem to manage to teach our own language to ourselves. Yeah, I suppose we're part of that, you know, English being a dominant world language, you know, and that um, it's easy to say, well, we have English, that's enough. But I think, you know, most, you know, mostly around the, the continent, you'll find that, you know, people do um, see the advantages of language learning and having different languages. And it gives you an insight into a different I suppose a different world in many respects, you mm. know, um, you know, and we think that should, you know, when you look at road sign even, mm. you know, you know, when you see what's in Irish and see what's in English, the English could be just, uh, it probably means nothing, you know, in terms yeah. of a literal translation, whereas the Irish is probably um, harping back to something that happened in the Tuatadanan or something that was, you know, something really interesting story behind what, whatever okay. the Irish is in it. And to understand that and be able to appreciate that, I think we should, yeah. You know, if we could, if we could better the the learning experience mm. for for um, students, I think that would help an awful lot. But but but, but it, it's the system that's used to teach, is it? Rather than as a, a nation of people, we don't have the capacity to learn several languages. Oh, I think we have the capacity, definitely. Um, and you know, if you one thing we don't do in the schools, for example, and something we promote again is the idea of uh, language awareness course that you would the whole way through um, the system again you'd be learning why learning languages is important what advantages you get from learning languages as well mm. um, and there's many I mean be it just cognitive reasoning or problem solving or you know when you look at a problem you say well there must be two solutions to this problem not one you know because you're thinking you've two languages things like that are very very interesting and even dementia in the future as well that helps with that as well so there's many reasons why to learn a language an extra language. And, you know, I think that, you know, if we were to do that more and more, the students understood why they were learning the languages, I think that would help them a lot. OK, well, this decision to reduce the teaching time follows a period of consultation that was carried out by the National Council for Curriculum and Assessment. You uh, are critical of uh, the way that consultation happened uh, and what it took into account, but it's led to this decision which you're asking the Minister to look at, but you're also asking the Minister to look at how Irish is taught in schools anyway. Yeah, we are, yeah. Because, I mean, the, the system or the consultation they put in place uh, gave three options for time allocations into the future and none of them were the status quo and we did a number of um, workshops with teachers and they were saying we need, we need at least the same amount of time we have for Irish and English, if not more. But that wasn't an option in the consultation. So we always knew from the very start that they were going to change the allocations. It doesn't surprise us that they reduced the amount of time for Irish because Irish doesn't seem to be as much of a priority as it should be 
um, when they're uh, making these decisions. So be it that decision or decision to move paper one Irish back to fifth year, which is, again, ex- language experts, teachers, students, they're all going against these decisions that are being made at the moment by the Department of Education. And I can't understand why they would do this when, you know, when there's, well, there's a huge interest, appetite to learn the language at the moment. But couldn't we do it right? Couldn't we take that step back, put a system together from preschool the whole way to third level mm. and have a system that actually, you know, actually produces um, people who can uh, function through the meaning of Irish by the time they reach the end of leaving third? All right. And that's a lot of time learning any language. Julian, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us today. Julian Despan, General Secretary of Conran Gaelica. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, if you do the school run on the Ballymacenny Road in Drogheda, we don't have to tell you about the traffic. Uh, let's hear about uh, some of uh, the potential solutions, if that's possible. Declan Power is an independent councillor on Louth County Council. He's come into studio to us uh, this morning, and thanks for doing that. Uh, it's a chaotic situation, isn't it, every single morning? It is, Michael, and, and thanks for having me in the studio. Um, yeah, look, it, it's every single morning, and it's not just the Ballymac Kenny Road either. It's over at the new Fonwell Road. Um, I take my kids to um, to St. Joseph and Greenhills, and it's 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 chaotic there as well. But particularly chaotic at the Ballymac Kenny Road. Um, we, I was, it was, it was a pleasure recently to, to be at the turning of the sod and the new Northern Port Access route and and all that type of thing, and and going to be a huge game changer for 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 Drogheda in the future. But at the moment, you've got these roadworks that are that are that are there and mm. are and are causing complete and utter chaos every single morning. Um, a lot of that chaos is coming from you know the children who are coming from the rural areas. So you got some kids coming from uh, Clara Head, Turbot Feck, and Walgertown Sandpit area. Uh, they're getting to the the, the 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 traffic light system. The traffic light system is uh, it's about a, about a two and a half minute wait. There's no traffic coming from the other side. And you have to wait because if you don't wait, if you do take a chance, you don't know what's coming around the corner. So I've raised this with Loud County Council mm. at uh, at the Borough Council meeting there there recently, and uh, so we're looking at a at a, a change in that system. Um, possibly, possibly the best solution is that you have your 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 traffic control guys. One mm. guy, each guy's on a, on a walkie-talkie. You you let traffic flow. Mm. That's the most important thing is is allowing the the the, the free flow of traffic. On that road mm. to ensure that that children and parents are getting to school on time, because at the moment that's what's not happening. Mm, it's a huge school, isn't it? It's a massive school. But mm, like, yeah, you take into mm, account, and yeah. um, Benham McKenney College, uh, St Oliver's next door, down the road as well. Presentation. There's almost two thousand children mm. um, that go to those schools. So the frustration every single morning. Some some children have actually been marked out absent. You know that they're being delayed. That, that late. That, that, yeah. that late. You mm, know so. Mm. Uh, very difficult um, with, with those roadworks, and um, but I think that's probably the very simple solution. Mm. But it's one-way uh, traffic, so it's one it's one-way traffic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and mm. um, uh, and I really do think just between the hours of eight a.m. and nine and nine a.m., it's one hour. Yeah. get your traffic controllers out. It's walkie-talkie system. Mm. It might sound like almost Stone Age stuff at this stage. But it's the only way it's yeah. going to work. Or it's a sensor on one side or something a- Exactly, like that. Yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, but it's the only way that, like, we, we got to get yeah. our children But if it's one-way traffic and the traffic is just stopped for no reason. That's it. That's it. And you're, There has you're, to be a solution. You're abiding by the, the, the rules of the of the red lights. Mm. You're not going to move. And you're going to say, you know, will I chance it? Will I not chance it? You can't, oh, you can't mm. chance it. No. You can't and especially it. <laughs> not bringing children to school. I mean, it's very That's bad it. example. And it's also like, like you know, mm. we, we need, we all know that we need more public transport. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And we've got our, our school buses that's taking these children to school as well. Mm. That's not even working. You know, the, the buses are, are yeah. stuck as well. Mm. So, how, how long will this situation continue? Well... You know, I, I would say it's going to continue right up until probably September or October of this year. Yeah. So that's why we need to make sure that we have this system in place. We know that when it comes to the school holidays, we won't have, mm. we won't have these problems at all. Yeah. But when schools are, are open and are uh, currently in action, mm. we've got to ensure that they get uh, And what's, what, what, what's involved in providing the solution or solutions that you're suggesting now? I mean, would that involve renegotiating the contractor, the contract with the developer? Yeah, but I think it's I think it's Loud County Council liaising with the contractor mm. and coming up with a with a with a with a better solution because what mm. we have there is um, is just and should chaos. somebody be asked? Uh, did they not anticipate this? You, you would think so. You would yeah. think so. And 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 I know that from talking to um, to the local principal that even the, sometimes they've even moved lights down. Closer to the school, yeah. you know, you know, you, there's no, there's no giant up thinking here at all. Yeah. Does, does the school have a role in providing a solution? I mean, could it uh, propose staggered opening times? You know or? what? Th- that was suggested, and I think that might even ca- create even more chaos. I think mm. the school should remain with their their usual opening and closing times. Stay with that. I think the easiest solution is that um, that the the, the, the council is with the with the contractors. Um, get in your traffic control, guys. Um, walkie-talkie or sensor system, and uh, just keep that traffic flowing. Um, and as I said, it's mainly just coming from one side where, where the yeah. chaos often happens. Yeah. Uh, but we all know that on, on that road, when you're making your way up, um, you know, towards those schools from the from the draw end, yeah. it's just chaotic. Um, Every single day. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure people are at their wits' end at this stage. Yeah, and it's it's it's, it's frustrating on the parents. It's frustrating on the on the principals and the, and the teachers as well. Mm. Some teachers have been late for school as well, and this is this is yeah. another another problem. But um, but it's it, it, look, it's getting a little bit of common ground. There's a little bit of common sense here as well. We know that the roadworks are going to happen. It was great with the turning up the sod uh, recently. It's mm. going to be a game changer to have um, that section of the road. That that might even be finished by that section by September, October. But for now, mm. let's get a a, 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 a a better solution that's going to get our kids to school on time. Yeah, and save people from having a nervous breakdown. We all know what it's like to be stuck but in traffic. It, like I remember that, yeah, as well, yeah. the parents have yeah. to go from mm. there then yeah. to work, and they're and they're yeah. and they're. They're they're up to up to the up yeah. to ninety with uh with uh with with stress or whatever. Of course, well, yeah, it must know, feel you know. very unfair. All right, uh, you're uh, also raising an issue about raw sewage. 
Yeah, that's right, Michael. Um, probably last um, last Thursday week now at this stage, it's probably going back to March March 2nd, uh, a number of residents in around the Boyne Hall, Tullybrook area uh, raised this issue with myself and, and, and local councillor, uh, Kevin Callum, um, and some of these photographs and videos that were coming to us. And then the start, then of course, then the, the comments and, the, and and everything else that are coming with it as well. But um, raw storage, yeah, was was flowing down the old Slane Road um, uh, from the Tullybrook area, um, flowing down along, along the, the the ditches. I was coming from the the M1 retail park. Um, that that um, that pump station is uh, is privately owned by the by by the park. But um, but I've raised this issue with Loud County Council. In the fairness, um, the, the the waste and environment section have been on the ball straight away. Um, I suppose the, the one there's, there's lots of issues, lots of lessons to be learned. I would say, Michael, with, with something like this, when this happened initially, you know, um, and there were tankering um, waste, the um, the retail park should have been in touch with Loud County Council or uh, EPA straight away, without waiting for. Members of the public are a local council to spot the issue mm. because it is a serious public oh, yeah. health issue. Of course, yeah. mm. And um, so, in fairness to the, to the waste and environmental team uh, in local county council, they've been they've been they've been liaising. Um, it's been um, it's been under control for the last uh, week or, or so. Um, it uh, the uh, waste has been tankered um, a, a couple of times a day. And um, and I suppose the good news is that look while, while the pump failed and these things happen, yeah. but when they happen, action needs to happen straight away. Yeah. And you gotta inform authorities when something like this happens. So um, looks like this week, you know, that we're going to have um, not alone a new pumping station at the retail park but also a backup one as well, almost like mm. a generator type thing that when if it ever kicks out again, something else will kick in yeah. so that this never happens again. And the seed is flowing down uh, the old Slane Road. I mean, we've seen that happening in other areas as well. There's been one or two mm. other parts of Drogheda where raw source has been, has been noticed as well. But it's, um, you know, you, you get... That area is, is a is a wonderful area for going walking oh, and gorgeous. cycling, yeah, and mm. we would have had the um, the local Drogheda Running Club asking us recently: Is it safe to run down that way? Mm. You know, it's only safe if you if you can avoid those puddles. But if mm. but if you're um, if you get um, wet, whatever like we would have got over the last over the weekend, mm-hmm. you don't know what you're you're stepping into, <laughs> yeah. and mm. the infection that that can cause, um, vomiting and and and, and uh, rodent sickness, as well uh, and all uh, sorts uh, of things. Dreadful, you know. Mm. But mm. so look, at least um, liaising has been done. We're on top of things, um, and it looks like a new pumping station will go in yeah. this week. And I know that from over the weekend, uh, pumping contractors have also been in Very with uh, with the retail park. So it's um, mm. yeah. it's sorting itself out. Thanks Very to good, the but it yeah. would seem like basic infrastructure in this day and age. Uh, having said all of that. Uh, yeah. Stephen Andrade has been in touch with us, uh, and I'm sure I don't need to tell you. He says it's not just in the mornings where there's problems on the Ballymacany Road. Uh, it's the same thing in the afternoons. Th- this well. is it. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. is it. And um, you know, and it's, it's the lighting system. And uh, we got a we got a you know box clever with this one. Rush hour in the morning, rush hour in the evening as well. Um, all that all that road from really, uh, Michael, as you know, from Banny McKinney onto the cross lanes. The, the cross lanes now. Mm-hmm. This can be a, another topic for another day. But that is just that's that's a no go area. I mean, that's that's just like I know staff that are that are leaving, uh, admin staff leaving the Lord's Hospital at five o'clock 
into the car across the way in the, in the car park and they're, they're stuck in the cross lanes for 45 minutes afterwards. God. It's nuts. Yeah, it's yeah, nuts. Absolutely. So we got, yeah, we got to, yeah. we got to, we got to get better, you know. Okay. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people will agree with <laughs> that last sentiment. Absolutely. Yeah, we leave absolutely. it there. Thank you indeed uh, for coming into us, uh, as I say. Declan Powers, an independent councillor on Louth County Council. Michael Reed on LMFM. Advertising gambling is to be banned outright from July of this year in Belgium. This is something that we should follow in this country, according to Mark Wall, the Labour Party senator and spokesperson on defence, tourism and sport, who's on the line with us. Good morning to you, Mark. Thanks for joining us here today. It is a brave move, as you say in your statement, by the Belgium authorities. It surely is, but it's, it's an essential move for so many people, Michael, and it's something that we in the Labour Party have pushed here to happen in Ireland. Your, your listeners, and I'm sure yourself, will be aware that gambling legislation has passed second stage in the Dáil and is now uh, in preparation for a committee stage here in Ireland, and that's the first time we've had gambling legislation before us in so many years. But there are so many issues going on at the moment with people with addiction that we feel that the tsunami of ads that you see on your radio, on your television in particular, you know, that something needs to happen. They need to be banned outright because people cannot enjoy sport anymore. And the, and the gambling company have worked very successfully to associate sporting events and betting. And that's, their, that's, that's what they do and that's what they do well. But unfortunately, it's affecting so many and a growing number of people. And in particular, the young people are being affected by this, Michael. So if the Labour Party proposed an outright ban, the legislation has proposed at the moment is, is, is proposing a watershed ban and we feel that we need to work on that and follow the example of Belgium and have an outright ban on gambling ads. Alright, and where does uh, the National Lottery come into all of this? Well, the National Lottery is a separate uh, is a separate entity, uh, unfortunately, at the moment, and it's something that we will all look at into the future. Um, you know, there's a separate regulator, but thankfully for the first time now, we have a gambling regulator who's appointed in September of, of last year. The lottery falls outside uh, this, this legislation at the moment, and it does need to be looked at. I get a lot of commentary when I speak about gambling on the lottery, and it's something that we will need to look at, but we need to look at betting at the moment and then outside of the lottery and address that, something, as I say, that hasn't been addressed for, for many years and you know that's what needs to happen and particularly as we were in Chancellor Week you can see the increase in betting ads this week every time you turn on the telly uh, every time you go on the, on the internet you're, you're going to see gambling ads thrown at you with offering free bets etc and that needs to stop there are too many people being affected here uh, yes the vast majority of people can have a bet and we're not against gambling per se but legislation needs to be brought in to tackle those that are affected and that's why we feel that a ban on gambling ads would help those the most vulnerable in our society. Uh, and do you believe that uh, banning advertising would stop people who are addicted to gambling from gambling? Yeah, it's, it's a huge issue. And when you speak to those that have a gambling addiction, the first thing they'll say is that when they see or hear a gambling ad, they, 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 they feel like they have to gamble again. And I've spoken to so many of them, I'm sure, You've interviewed them as well, Michael, and that's what they say. That's what they tell us, and that's why they support this campaign. They feel that once they see gambling, if you have that addiction, it's a, as they will tell you, it's a lifetime addiction. And once they see these gambling ads on or hear them, they then are tempted once again. I've recently spoken to one uh, addict who told me that he was almost uh, about to gamble a thousand euros of his savings. He has come out of that. He is he is gambling free, as he says, for three years. But he was, 
you know, forced and, and tempted, I suppose is the word, by a gambling ad. And he felt that he needed to bet, to bet his savings of a thousand euros. And that's what those that have an addiction say. And unfortunately, more and more developing addiction. And that's why we need to support those and we need to, we need to protect those. And that, that's why, you know, we feel that banning gambling ads, as Belgium did, mm. is a ver- vital step and, a, and an important first step. Yeah, I'm sure there's great resistance to it in Belgium. It's big money, isn't it? Look, it's, it's it's a massive industry. There's no there's no other way of saying that, you know. And as I say, they've worked hard to create this association between betting and and, and sport. Um, but that's something we need to break. I think we all need to go back and take a breather when we're enjoying live sport and the ads come on. We're currently inundated. That needs to stop. We need to just see sport for what it is, for the benefit that it can give us all for our mental health. You know, and that's what that's what needs to happen, Michael. And that's why we're proposing this ban. Mm, but people will always bet anyway, won't they? Uh, yeah, look, look. as we said, look, gambling is going to proceed. There's no doubt about that and we're not against a ban on, on gambling. We're not saying that in any way, shape or form. Mm. What we are saying is that we need to protect the most vulnerable. We need to ensure that, that, that there's protections and, and there's assistance and I think that's important. As part of the new gambling legislation, there's to be a social fund to help those that develop a gambling addiction and that's what we need. And we also need more research of the gambling addiction in this country. We've had a number of reports that tell us that there's 30,000 people with an addiction, 55,000 people with an addiction, or potentially up to 250,000 people that will develop an addiction. That needs more research. We need to make sure that those people get the help that they need. And that needs, that's very important that that social fund is, is, is in place and comes out as a result of this legislation. Uh, and one thing uh, about this that is certain is uh, that the bookie never loses. Uh, but the addiction can really be as bad as any addiction, can't it? You won't just lose your shirt at times people hand over their house keys. Yeah, and this is, the, this is the thing as well. And, and many of the people I, I speak to, and unfortunately the partner does not find out until that, that letter comes through the post that the 30,000 mortgage has not been paid or that the life savings are gone. Unfortunately, I've dealt recently with a couple who their modest enough life savings have gone uh, through gambling addiction. And this is something that I find, you know, it, it's growing more and more. Um, you know, the majority of people are able to safely gamble, but unfortunately there are those that can't, Michael. And those are the people, the most vulnerable that we need to help. Uh, and, you know, as, as I said, uh, earlier, those that with a gambling addiction will tell you it never goes away. The temptation is always there. All right. What about the internet? Uh, because uh, a large part of the problem seems to be the internet uh, and how easy it is to place a, a bet on your phone without giving it a, a second thought. Uh, is it possible to police the internet? If you ban advertising, can you ban it on the internet? Well, that, that, that's what we were told we can, and that there's a bit of work in relation to this being done at the moment by the department. I've spoken to the minister a number of times on this, and the legislation as it stands would actually ban them on the internet, and it's something that needs to happen because, you know, gambling ads will, will portray this great social scene where you're with your friends, uh, you know, and you're taking this bet, and that happens. But the reality for many with an addiction is that they're by themselves, they're in a room, or obviously sometimes, as people tell me, they're sitting beside a partner actually gambling on their phone, the partner not knowing. So there's that, that social issue that we need to address as well, you know, through gambling. And that's the, the internet, as the minister has said, they, he's going to tackle that ad and he says he can do, do that. Uh, and we would totally support that in the Labour Party. Mm, I, I'm sure. Uh, time will tell, though, if it is possible or, or not. Uh, what about the lure of free bets? 
yeah, look, they, they need to be to, to be uh, banned, Michael. There's no doubt about that. One of the issues that 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 again, those within addiction tell me, and I've spoken to to so many of them over the last number of years, is that they open up uh, the, their internet, they open up their apps, and here's a free bet for them again. And uh, this is something that needs to, to end, you know. And, and the credit card betting, and, and in fairness to some of the gambling companies, they have already banned the credit card betting, you know. And that's and that's that's also included as part of this legislation, which we would support. So those are a number of issues that 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 need to happen to protect the vulnerable, uh, you know, and allow them, you know, the, the safe place to enjoy sport once again. Mm. What about the media, the mainstream media, the television companies and uh, radio stations, wherever else, uh, newspapers uh, that people are, are uh, being bombarded with these ads, uh, have they a role to play in this? Of course they have. Like, you know, this needs to have a conversation like we're having this morning, Michael, and there's more and more conversations happening. You're hearing more and more sports stars coming out giving their story and those conversations need to happen and that needs to happen through the national media and the media companies have a big role to play here this this is a public health issue and we need to address that you know uh, when you speak to those that are helping those with addiction they're seeing more and more unfortunately more and more young people coming looking for help so the media have a strong role to play here uh, and they need to get this message out you know that gambling per se is okay for many but for for, for a growing uh, number of people it's not okay and that needs the national discussion that needs a public health uh, address by the minister and then thankfully in my conversations and with others the minister says that he he realises that and he wants to look at that from gambling as a public health issue as well so that's what we need to look at it's 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 it's, it's essential that that happens okay uh, not literally uh, but would you bet on Gary Lineker returning to match of the day at the weekend yeah, well, I, th- I think he will, um, uh, Michael. I think he will. I think, I think, I think, I think it's stance. just being confirmed, by the way. Yeah, well, yeah, there you are. Yeah. He, he took a strong stance, and I think he will be back. I think that you know we all want to get sport, and, and you know that's one thing about the BBC. You don't see ads on their thing, so you can actually enjoy matches of the day. And I've looked at it; I'm sure you have for over many years. And it's a great to see it on a Saturday night, you know, on fairness. So we need to get back to enjoying sport without the interference of gambling ads. And as spokesperson on sport, would you have supported his position to make his political views known uh, on social media? Well, look, I'm sure he would say that that's his personal views. And, he, you know, if you have a political view, then, in my opinion, your own personal social media, your own personal outlet is where you make those. Obviously, I'm not privy to what he and his employer have in their contracts, so I don't know what that meant for him. But as far as I'm concerned, and a lot of people you will see under social media is that they will say it's their personal views under social media. That's where you should say it. If you have views and if you have political views, I'm sure that that's the best place to say it. And, you know, okay. um, I would support a lot of what Gary said over over the weekend, in fairness, uh, and you know, I think he he came out and said that, that this was his personal views. Mm. Obviously, his employer may have a different opinion of that, and that's between them and, and contracts. I'm yeah. sure come into that as well. Yeah, and his government might have uh, a different view about him calling it a, a spade mm. a spade, as the case Absolutely. may be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the BBC has announced this morning that Gary Lineker will return to presenting match of the day next weekend. Uh, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us on the program this morning, Mark. Mark Wall is uh, the Labour Party senator. Uh, who is spokesperson on defence, tourism and sport.
some comments coming to us uh, from Paddy Duffy, who says, I agree with uh, a ban on gambling ads. As it stands, it's akin to putting a pint in front of every recovering alcoholic. Well put, Paddy. Thank you indeed uh, for that. Uh, we had a, a text from Tom who says, my dad went into hospital in January of 2021. It wasn't COVID related. He was there for 10 days being tested for COVID uh, and he was negative all of the time. He, he was almost ready to come home. He was in a ward with five other people and we spoke on the phone five or six times a day. Oh, those memories, Tom, of when uh, we had to communicate like that. Uh, he told me then that a new patient had been admitted to his ward but was coughing all of the time for two days in a row. Then everyone in that ward tested positive, including my dad, and he died 16 days later. It's very hard to accept. I'm sure it is, Tom. He says, I want to let him rest in peace, but I also feel that it wasn't managed properly and that he shouldn't have died. I think that's a very understandable position uh, that you have, uh, Tom. Thank you indeed uh, for sharing your thoughts with us today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if you were listening to the programme on Friday, you'd have heard Alan interview Tom Fitzgerald of uh, the Unite Trade Union about a dispute, dispute at Cargo Tech in Dundalk, which resulted in strike action. The company has been in touch with us subsequent to that interview with Unite and has taken issue uh, with a a number of uh, things that the Unite Trade Union has said, which is probably of no great surprise given that there's uh, an industrial dispute that is underway and is uh, obviously uh, very contentious given uh, the action of uh, the workers and uh, their trade union representatives. Uh, But at the heart of it uh, seems uh, to be the legal process when undertaking the 2P transfer of employment of uh, employees, in this case 40 employees from Cargo Tech to FSP. Uh, The company says that it has abided by the correct legal process in a statement that was issued to LMFM when undertaking that to be transfer. Uh, Of course, you would have heard on Friday the trade union saying that it has a different interpretation of uh, the legislation uh, in terms of whether you're dealing with an individual or a collective. Uh, In other words, one group of 40 employees. Uh, they say that uh, the company is, uh, the, says that the that legality uh, was established uh, in emergency WRC talks in December 22 uh, and they said that they're in line with the 2P regula- regulations. Uh, the trade union says they're not and they want to see that trashed out uh, in the Workplace Relations Commission uh, and that is the basis that they want to negotiate on. The company seems to be taking a a different position to all of that. Uh, But in the statement to LMFM, I I think some eyebrows may be raised by how the management is saying that the company is at an advanced stage in identifying a site for a state-of-the-art facility in Dundalk which will represent a €30 million Euro investment. A separately FSP is committed to investing 8 to €10 million in a new lo- co-located fabrication and paint plant in Dundalk. Uh, they say while well, all of that's positive these plans, and this is the eyebrow-raising bit they say these plans have now been put on hold 
due to the ongoing uncertainty as the investment is dependent on the shared partnership between the two companies. So there's a question mark over the commitment to Dundalk because of the industrial rea- uh, the industrial action that is being made very clear in the cargo tech statement. Uh, we did ask Cargo Tech to join us on the programme to discuss what they're saying uh, in uh, this letter that was issued to the radio station, uh, but they've declined our invitation today. Perhaps uh, we'll hear from Cargo Tech at another stage, but that won't happen today. Some of the comments uh, that have been coming to us, Dan, a text message from somebody who says, Hi, Michael, that man mustn't listen to LMFM. Uh, Where would LMFM be uh, without uh, the Navin race course? Uh, even suggesting that children should spend their confirmation day there and get their free meal with daddy losing his shirt. You at the same time, I agree Uh, with no advertising of gambling. Uh, Thank you indeed uh, for sharing that thought with us. I think that's uh, probably uh, a fair comment. Um, We Another text that came to us from John and Navin who says uh, whoever uh, is uh, in charge of the HSE they should realise that it's top-heavy and it's only now that they're copying on this. Why Why? why is it taking so long? The whole problem started years ago when different health boards merged to form the monstrosity called the HSE. The rot started with Professor Brendan Drum, who filled the whole place with pen-pushing bureaucrats who got large bonuses for doing nothing until the HSE sheds weight at the top and the government appoints a minister. Who knows what he or she knows what they are talking about? The HSE will continue to be a shambles, says John in Navin. Thanks, John, for that. Strong thoughts being shared today from Eric Cuthbert, as usual. Eric is in Dundalk. And he says that Gary Lineker should keep politics out of all sporting activities. Yeah, he he was on the internet, he was on Twitter. Um, So it wasn't part of sporting activities, it was just his personal thoughts on Twitter. Whether he should express them or not uh, is the issue, Uh, and the BBC seems to think he, he shouldn't be making his opinions known because He represents the BBC, uh, and those opinions may not represent the BBC. That's what's at the heart of it. Uh, Dave, thank you for your call to the programme. Dave says, enough time is spent teaching Irish as it is. Uh, And he says he acknowledges the need for our national language to be taught in schools, but it shouldn't be forced on people. It should be taught alongside all of the other languages and made optional uh, if need be. Thanks for that, Dave. I think there's really something wrong with the education system, though. How is it that uh, you can be served by somebody in a different country uh, in a bar or a restaurant who has six languages and they're fluent in them all? He's talking to you in, in English one minute and the next minute having a laugh and a joke with somebody in German. And we spend all of our lives in school and come out of school and not able to put two words together. Uh, going back to Gary Lineker, John says the BBC really scored an own goal in how they handled this row. It was ludicrous that they took the course of action uh, that they did. John says he admires Lineker's colleagues and his friends greatly for coming out in solidarity with them and for backing his stance. Not everyone would be so lucky to have that level of support. I think there's uh, a lot of truth in that, John. 
Rosie, thank you for your call to the programme today as well. Uh, Rosie says her heart always breaks for the Dalgan House families when she hears uh, them talking about what happened to their loved ones. It's horrendous to see how hard they have, to see how hard they're left fighting to get answers to basic questions. Rosie says, this is simply not right. On the Irish language again, then Tom says he doesn't see the harm in reducing the amount of time spent teaching Irish in schools in favour of foreign languages. Irish, while a lovely language, is somewhat obsolete in terms of uh, how it can be used. Uh, in terms of business or carving a career for yourself. Foreign languages are are much more beneficial, he says, on that front. And we have to prepare our kids for the world that they're currently living in and arm them with the tools that they need. Thanks, Tom. I make the same point, though. We're not very good at teaching foreign languages either. We just are bad at teaching languages. I don't think there's any disputing that when you see how good people are from other countries at learning languages. Uh, whether it's your waitress uh, or uh, whoever it is uh, that you're uh, getting uh, on a taxi with or whatever. You go abroad and people just speak millions of languages. There's something wrong here uh, that we can't teach Irish or French or German or Spanish to the degree that when you come out of school that you can actually speak the thing. Ellen says, I'm sitting here laughing. A regulator for gambling. We have regulators for everything. And they're all asleep at the wheel, says <laughs> Alan. Thank you uh, for your WhatsApp message, uh, Alan. Uh, another WhatsApp message comes to us uh, from Cahill in Mornington. And uh, Cahill says, good morning, Michael. Given the conversation around gambling and its adverse effects on young people, is it just me or is the advertisement for confirmation celebrations in Navin Racecourse in bad taste, says Cahill in Mornington. Uh, again, fair comments. Uh, thanks, uh, Carl, for that. I'm sure that'll be heard loud and clear. Uh, and it's good to hear everybody's o- opinion on these issues as well. Uh, somebody else in touch with us uh, saying, uh, I-, I am 100% Gary Lineker. Uh, I I'm, I'm presume they're behind, uh, behind Gary Lineker. What are we if we can't have a, an opinion? Yes, I get it now. I'm sorry. I'm 100% behind Gary Lineker. What are we if we can't have a, a, an opinion? Yeah, uh, I think that's the view that the mo- most people are taking. I think uh, uh, Gary Lineker has uh, the majority support for the position he's taken. Uh, there is this other idea that people in current affairs and news should not express opinions about current affairs or news uh, because uh, they can influence uh, the people who are, are listening to them and that that wouldn't be appropriate. Mairead, thank you for your text as well. She says, why can't parents carpool for school runs? Wouldn't that take some of the traffic off the roads or is it that yummy mummies like showing off their vehicles? <laughs> I'd say there's some yummy mummies, if there's any yummy mummies, uh, but I'd say there's some mummies and daddies, uh, for that matter, Mairead, uh, who will be very offended by what you have to say, given the stress that they're going through uh, every morning on the Ballymckenny Road. Uh, but there is a, an awful lot of uh, children who are being driven to school. I think I understand your point, and thanks for making it. If you would like to make comment on the programme today, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is, as always, 0419832000. That's 0419832000. If you want to ring us today, you can text or WhatsApp. The number to text or WhatsApp is 086 1800 658. And as always, you can email michael at lmfm.ie. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you know, the government has uh, decided uh, to end the ban on evictions at uh, the end of uh, this month. Let's speak uh, to Sinn Féin spokesperson on housing, Owen O'Brien, who's on the line. Thanks for joining us, as always. You're working uh, on a motion uh, at the moment, and I gather uh, when you table it, you'll be asking the Dáil to vote in favour of extending the ban up to the end of this year. Absolutely. We, we, we have two asks of government, Michael. One is to extend the ban until the end of January um, uh, and two, crucially, to put in place the kind of emergency measures that we called for last October, both to prevent uh, uh, people from becoming homeless, uh, but also then to increase the supply of social and affordable housing using some emergency powers that the government has get people out of emergency accommodation more quickly. We have to ease the pressure on the emergency accommodation system, which is currently at breaking point. Uh, And significantly on Friday of last week, the Residential Tenancies Board published the figures for eviction notices issued by landlords to tenants in the third quarter of last year. Almost 5,000 such eviction notices. Thousands of those will fall due in the first couple of weeks of April uh, if the government allows the ban on evictions to end. And there's simply nowhere for those people to go, uh, uh, particularly not in terms of emergency accommodation. So the motion is not just about extending the ban. It's really about the emergency measures that need to be put in place to relieve the pressure uh, uh, on the homeless system, uh, but also to give uh, uh, folks who are being displaced uh, from the private rental sector as their landlords are, are selling up mm. either the opportunity uh, for the council's approved housing bodies to purchase those homes or for those tenants to be given uh, permanent social or affordable homes of their own. Uh, and you're suggesting that that could result in 12,000 people becoming homeless. Um, if there is nowhere for them to go, uh, I'm not sure it's even worth asking the question, but what will happen? Where will they go? Will they be sleeping on the streets? Yeah, so the, 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 that figure of 12,000 relates to uh, the, the almost 5,000 notices that were issued uh, during the third quarter of last year, and then a portion of the notices that were issued at the end of, of the second quarter, because they're all kind of protected by the ban on evictions. And look, OK, there are some single people who rent and there's some large families, but if you take a conservative estimate of per tenancy, there's two people living in it, then you're talking about you know upwards of 12,000 people. <laughs> And the difficulty is, in many local authorities at the moment, emergency accommodation is already full uh, or is close to capacity. Um, uh, and it won't be able to, to cope with the kind of numbers we're looking at. Clearly, huge numbers of people who will lose their rental properties will end up staying with family and friends. Uh, not everybody presents for emergency accommodation in the first instance. But also, a lot of those renters will be forced uh, to overhold that because they will have nowhere else to go they will end up remaining in those rental properties and obviously getting into uh, even greater conflict with the landlords. Some people would be forced to sleep rough, um, um, uh, and that's very concerning. And under two-star rules, if a family with children presents to a local authority for emergency accommodation and no such accommodation is available, they have to be referred to a Garda station for somewhere safe to sleep. Uh, the Garda representative organisation was in the papers over the weekend saying that, that that wasn't an appropriate response either. So I've done any number of debates over the last five or six days with government spokespeople. Uh, and when we asked them that question, where are people to go when their notice is full due in April, May and June and the emergency accommodation is full, they cannot answer that question. And that in and of itself uh, uh, means that the ban on evictions has to be extended. It's not a permanent policy. It's not an ideal policy, but it has to be extended to take the pressure off the emergency accommodation system and crucially give government uh, that breathing space to take the kind of emergency measures that are required 
uh, both to prevent people becoming homeless and also increase the supply of social affordable homes. Okay, and the government says, you're right, people are going to become homeless, but your suggestion will compound the problem and lead to more people becoming homeless because landlords will simply sell up. So single property landlords have been selling in significant numbers since 2017. Uh, from 2017 to 2021, the years we have figures for, we, we saw about 40,000 rental properties removed from the rental market. Obviously, they then get bought and owner-occupiers move into them. <coughs> since 2018, I've been calling both on the last minister and this minister to put in place a plan to deal with that, uh, and they have failed. Uh, and the Residential Tenancies Board uh, published some independent research at the end of last year outlining um, the scale of, of, I suppose, future exit of single property landlords. Some are leaving because they never wanted to be landlords, but they were trapped in negative equity and they're now availing of positive equity. Others bought a rental property, not so much for the rental income, but for a pension pot lump sum and they're approaching pension age and house prices are high, so they're selling up. There are some landlords who believe they're taxed and, and regulated too much. But the RTB's research shows very clearly that that trend of single property landlords exiting is going to continue. So what government needs to focus on is putting in place measures, both, for example, large-scale purchase of private rental properties, not just with social housing tenants in receipt of HAP and RAS in situ, but also those people who aren't eligible for social housing, but who would be eligible for affordable cost rental for those to be purchased. So the landlord sells, gets market value, but the tenants aren't displaced. But crucially, uh, we need to have an alternative supply of rental accommodation, particularly social and affordable rental, so that as landlords sell and those properties are then bought by owner-occupiers, there is this alternative stream of social and affordable rental properties that people can move into. The fact that government has known about this since 2017 and 2018, we've been screaming about it in the doll year after year, Mm. and yet have put no plan in place uh, 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 is the key problem that we have in front of us. Uh, And therefore, unfortunately, if we want to avoid the very human catastrophe uh, of significant increases in homelessness, the ban on evictions has to be extended. The only reason why we're even talking about a ban on evictions is because of the failure of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael housing policy. But the ban in and of itself is not the solution. It is the emergency measures that government could have taken over the winter ban and failed to do so uh, and would need to do now so that the ban can then be lifted uh, in January of next year. Um, uh, 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 and many of the families who would otherwise become homeless would have been prevented from doing it. And that. you're suggesting that the crisis is going to be worse than ever, like nothing we've ever seen before. The scale, uh, you said in the Sunday Independent yesterday, uh, will be one that has never been imagined before. Uh, but is it inevitable? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but is the government's argument not that uh, we either face into this scale of homelessness now or you push it down the line and you'll have as many people uh, homeless then uh, when the ban is ultimately lifted if, as you say, that should be at the end of January next year. Uh, And then there's uh, this story that was uh, in the Sunday Independent yesterday that the government thinks that that would hurt them electorally if that was to be the case. And uh, I read that story, and I have to say, if the story is true, it it just shows how cynical the decision was in the first instance. Look, if if you just had a ban on evictions, and if you did nothing else, which is what the government did over the winter period, then absolutely all you would be doing is storing up an even bigger problem. The point of a ban on evictions uh, is to give you breathing space uh, and then to take additional emergency action to resolve and relieve the pressure uh, on the emergency accommodation system. During COVID-19, government moved heaven and earth. They used emergency procurement and planning powers 
to deliver all sorts of infrastructure, testing centres and, and vaccination centres and accommodation centres. We need the same kind of uh, emergency response now to put a couple of thousand extra social and affordable homes into the system above the existing government targets. And that means giving our local authorities uh, access to those emergency planning and procurement powers, uh, getting them to go after vacant and derelict buildings or some new building technologies to put those extra units in the stream. If you look at what the government did last year, they had set themselves a very low target of about 9,000 social homes and about 2,000 affordable homes to be delivered in 2022. They missed both of those targets. Not only did they not provide any additional emergency uh, 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 social affordable housing uh, uh, provision, they didn't even meet their own targets. They delivered about 7,500 social and maybe about 1,000 affordable homes, possibly even less. Mm. So this crisis is a crisis of the government's making. Um, and... My big concern at the moment is, given the scale of the notices to quit, the eviction notices that the Residential Tenancies Board published on Friday, given that we know our emergency accommodation uh, system is at breaking point and in many places it's full, it is simply unconscionable that government would allow single people, families, families with children and pensioners face into April, May and June with no idea of where they're going to go. Mm. I just I cannot understand how you would do that. And government needs to really think very carefully. The doll is back uh, next week. We sit for two weeks. We could introduce emergency legislation. And on a temporary basis, uh, 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 extend the ban and introduce those emergency measures. Mm. Uh, and keep in mind, tenants can still be evicted during the ban on evictions if they don't pay the rent, yeah. if they damage yeah. the property, engage in antisocial behaviour. Yeah. What we're really talking about is those cases where landlords are seeking to sell their properties. Yeah. And in many cases... Uh, those properties could and should be purchased by local authorities and approved housing bodies. Uh, but even that, the government isn't getting right. The number of such properties that have been purchased uh, since that scheme was reopened in April of last year is absolutely tiny. Mm, and the stress that... in my own constituency, mm. I've had cases in my own constituency where landlords with social housing tenants in situ wanted to sell to our council, were willing to sell at a, a marginal discount because they had a long-term relationship with their tenants. Yeah. Uh, and because the scheme from central government is so badly designed, uh, it took the local authority up to five months before they even decided that they were interested, by which time the landlord had given up and sold the property on the private market. Yeah. So government really needs to get its act together, do an awful lot more. Um, uh, but ending the ban on evictions with no contingency, contingency mm. plan in place, which is what's happening at the moment, is not an acceptable uh, uh, response. Uh, and this idea that somehow things will be more difficult in the short term but will get better in the longer term, how is that possibly the case when government still isn't delivering the social affordable housing that's required? Single property landlords are continuing to leave the market and we know that institutional investors mm. are now walking away from the market because of rising interest rates. Well, the government accepts that when the ban uh, ends, people will become homeless. Uh, so it is acceptable. Acceptable is always an interesting word uh, in the way that it is used or unacceptable more to the point uh, because if you allow a situation to happen then you have to uh, agree that it is acceptable. Uh, Whether it should be acceptable or not is a different day's work and you can only imagine the stress that is putting on people and you're hearing it all the time as you say uh, and it's highlighted uh, I think in uh, the Daily Mail it's from page talking about families going to GPs looking for medication because of the stress they're feeling because they don't know where they're going to be living the next day uh, we could do better couldn't we? Absolutely and, and it's important to remember that you know, a, 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 a percentage of people uh, will end up presenting for emergency accommodation. But there's a much wider group of people um, uh, in the private rental sector who will end up moving back in with family or friends. 
you know, 20% uh, of all households across the state rent. It's almost three quarters of a million people. Renting isn't just something that people do for short periods of time. You know, increasingly we're seeing people in their 50s who are long-term renters, families with children, you know, folks who lost their home during the Celtic Tiger and they're now back in the rental sector, uh, people whose relationships broke down, or, or young people um, uh, who would like to be able to buy or, or languishing mm-hmm. on a local authority waiting list, okay. getting back uh, in the rental sector. So there's a huge section of society affected by this. And of for course, me, the most frustrating and forgive thing me for cutting across you. But, but let me make this point. This crisis has been building year after year after year since 2014 Okay, uh, and you'll be making those points when the government has failed to plan and act. When the doll resumes next week. I'm out of time, that's why I have to cut across you. But thank you for your time. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. That's Sinn Féin spokesperson on housing, Ono Brim. That's our programme for today. Megan McGuire Research, Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.